Hi, I'm Dan Cottrell, editor of Rugby Coach Weekly. You're about to jump into one of our podcasts. If you want to find out more about this podcast and also all of the great content, drills, activities, games and advice on the website, then go over to www.rugbycoachweekly.net. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with me, Dan Cottrell. I'm delighted to have with us today, Paul Gustard. So welcome to the pod, Paul. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me. Uh, Paul's out in sunny Treviso at the moment. Uh, is it sunny? It's glorious, actually. Yeah, it's about 15 degrees. Um, you know, it's getting warm when mosquitoes are coming out over here as well. So it's like <laughs> okay. a, bit, a bit more, mate. But yeah, it's, it's 15 degrees, sun is shining, not a cloud in the sky. Very nice. Yeah, lovely, lovely. So uh, this is all very cheerful. Uh, I know that um, you've just had a hard weekend with lots of players missing. Um, but we won't uh, we won't talk too too much about that. Uh, so uh, for those who are not so familiar with Paul's background, had a successful career playing for Tigers, London Irish, and Saracens in the back row, and then went on to be assistant coach with Saracens, uh, defence coach with England, head coach at Harlequins, and now is defence coach with Benetton out in Italy. Hence why he is in. Treviso at this moment. So uh, lovely to have you on, Paul. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good to be on, mate. I'm looking forward to this. Okay, so you said to uh, challenge you with some questions. Given that you didn't win at the weekend, why do you love coaching? <laughs> well, I think I think the first thing about loving coaching is um, the swings and roundabouts, obviously. Sometimes you're on the, um, you're on the up, sometimes you're on the down, and sometimes... Uh, you can't quite put uh, or, or make head or tail of it, you know. And um, I think the good opportunity with coaching is there's always the next game. And then that's mm. that's the exciting thing. And I think fundamentally for me, the the, the enjoyment of coaching um, comes from that connection with people. You know, I, I think it's uh, anyone that's coached or teached um, or done something where they have an interaction, a deeper connection uh, with somebody about their personal development, about their ambition, about their their, their worries, their concerns, their fears, um, you know, the things they want to achieve in their life, things that have happened with their family, their friends. I think you start developing something that that's, appeals to all your senses. Uh, and, and I think when you have that as a human being, um, I think then that starts to become something that feels really holistic and whole and puresome. And uh, you get a lot of enjoyment out of that. Of course, um, there's, there's things that can be challenging with coaching, but I think that the overriding thing is when you're on this journey of coaching and exploration of people is you're not just developing the play developing yourself at the same time and the amount of things I've had to learn or learned along this journey of, of coaching for I think it's my 15th season now um, is exponential you know each year there's something different I have to try and work out each each year that goes by I'm a little bit older I'd say less bald but I'm already bald <laughs> probably for 10 years ago so, so but it kind of kind of kind of kind of what you're facing all the time is something where you're going to have to learn about how to interact with people that are, are generationally completely different to you and, you know, culturally in Italy, completely different to where I, where, where I was brought up in Newcastle. Um, you know, and, you, and you're trying to find some common ground to try and connect with people, um, try and mirror their, their emotion, their senses, their feelings, uh, try and understand them at a deeper level to try and see how you can progress with them and, and really make sure that they get their chance in the sun, you know, because 
It's not about my playing career. It's not about where I was coaching last year, three years ago, five years ago, five years ago or anything. It's only about coaching now here in the present with a group of players that I've got and how I can help them. So I find, I find that quite addictive. Um, <laughs> I find the, the, need, the need to be adaptable, um, awesome. And because I have a, a thirst for development, um, I really enjoy having to search new things and try and find new ways and, and better myself uh, to, to help the player get better. So you said uh, you've learned what sort of things are different now to uh, the, the version of you, say, three years ago or five years ago? What's changed? Look, well, I mean, the, the, the obvious thing right here right now is, is, is language-wise, obviously, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a barrier. You know, most of the players speak English uh, to a very high level. Um, all of them speak English to some level, and, and I can speak a tiny bit of Italian. So <laughs> kind of, I, I, think, I, think what, I think what it kind of made me do is really simplify my coaching. You know, you, re, you really fine-tune. You cut away all, all the wheat and the chaff, and you get you organize what it is that you actually need to, to present, um, how you present it, how clear you are, because obviously going through a different language, some things can get lost or misinterpreted. So imagery is important, metaphors important, stories important, visualization is important. So how you do meetings might not be a traditional standard meeting. It might be a walkthrough meeting more where we know through process of learning and pedagogy, that's probably a better way for people to learn anyway. And, and, I, and I kind of find that as a, as, a, as a really useful way for me to develop what I'm doing. And kind of one of the reasons I really wanted to try something abroad, not just for the cultural experience, of course, was that I always want to try something and see how I could stretch myself as a coach. I'd, I'd always played in the premiership, um, you know, played for England a couple of times, coached in England, uh, coached England for a few years, obviously. And I wanted to try something different, you know, and I never anticipated in all honesty that I'd end up in Italy. Uh, but the connection I had with the people here was, was the most important thing. And you probably can sense that with the way I talk about what I get out of coaching and, and, and what I feel when I, why I love coaching. Is, is the feel like you get this connection with people that's, that can be quite special at times. So giving, giving some thought to simplifying, give me some examples of where you've uh, cut away what you've done before and gone, gone straight to the point. Well, what, what have you done differently there? I think you can probably tell by the way I'm talking to you, I can be quite verbose and I can use quite a lot of language and I talk quite a lot and I can talk quite fast. Um, a trait from, from being a Geordie as well, I guess. But, <laughs> but I think that when, you, when, you, when you're coming to something and are presenting, you know, the, there's kind of two golden rules that if you try and engage an audience, one, you want them in groups of no more than four. Any more than four, if you're trying to get a discussion, you get a group of three and a group of two. So keep them to groups of four uh, for discussion, putting a bit more thinking in them to provoke a question to get them to think. And then secondly, keep trying to keep things to the power of three. Um, it's not rocket science. Most people have done that. We're trying, trying to keep things to three. And, and I kind of use that with throughout my coaching kind of philosophy, really, because um, I was once uh, listening to somebody talk about advertising and sales. And, and they always talk about tell them what you're going to tell them. So in this instance, today, we're talking about defense and we're looking about how we can break down so-and-so. Tell them. So explain what it is specifically you're going to do and what actions you want to do what it is, how you're going to do it and why it's important because there has to be a relevance for the player and for the team about why it's beneficial to them or to the team for success. And then finally, tell them what you told them. So it's, a, it's the same thing. You know, it might be through questioning. It might be reminding them about the key points. It might be in groups of four. But the idea of trying to keep things to kind of three formats of, of doing stuff, um, I, I think kind of has helped me really get uh, really tight and narrow on, on the most important things. You can always point to lots of things in rugby, can't you? And, and I think you know, it's, a, it's a famous sound thing from Declan Kidney about keep it simple, stupid. But, but trying to keep the things, is, 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 is let the main thing stay the main thing and, and uh, always let the main thing stay the main thing, you know? And the more that we stay true to that as coaches, 
uh, and try and put as much of your thinking in the player as possible, um, then I think that, that that's the biggest way for, for, for growth. Okay, so the players are now being given this approach. Uh, one of the dangers sometimes is coaches come in with a different approach to the one that the players are used to. They're, they may be used to a, um, a coach who tells them everything they've got to do and uh, this, this is the way. And they are then suddenly put into groups and made to think for themselves. How quickly or how easy is it to make that change with the players? Or is, is there a sort of a secret path to persuade them of your way? <laughs> persuasion um look i, I think i think uh, look I, I think like in anything in any uh, facet of life that there's early adopters there's quick responders there's people that take a little bit longer um and that's just natural you know there's people that you could show a form of skill um you know you could show um you know a young boy how to pass his right hand uh you know 45 degrees elbow high or something whatever it is you might be trying to coach and it might take one boy one session one girl one session, somebody else, five sessions, somebody else still still doesn't quite get it, you know. And, and I think it's the same when you try and think in the player. It's easy sometimes just to be told. And, and some players can respond to that. And you have to obviously understand, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversation about how perhaps they can receive information, but also understanding that the bigger coaching journey that you're on and the bigger development journey that the player could be on. And you're trying to align them to try and see how they can think for themselves. And by asking open-ended questions, I think helps, you know, like if you if you have a a meeting, for example, I'm going, you know, uh, we've talked about, say, uh, spacing, we've sp spoken about um, staying square, we've spoken about washing the ball, for example. And then I ask a question, you know, what, what can you remember seeing about uh, our spacing? What, what are the key things we need to get right this weekend, boys? Dan, you know, if I asked it the way around, I'm going, Dan, what did you think about our spacing and what we need to get right about staying square this weekend? I've, I've completely narrowed the room down to one person. Mm. I know you've got to think. If I ask the question first and then the name afterwards, the whole room has to think, waiting for me to, to see who it is I'm going to ask the question to. Likewise, groups of four, and then they can all have a discussion or pairs, whichever way you want to do it. And then, again, they don't know which group you're going to ask. I think, you know, sort so of subconsciously or sort of as long as it's happening all around them all the time, they get submersed in this kind of, of way of thinking for themselves. And the way we're trying to operate this year is trying to put more um, ownership to the players about trying to construct the game plan a little bit more as well. Do you find that uh, there's any players who are saying, actually, I don't want to take on that responsibility. Um, I'm very happy to turn up, do my job, uh, make my tackles, um, get my kicks, and then someone else can make the decisions? Yeah, look, there's definitely players that like to follow and, and that's also good. But I think there's still ways, opportunities for everyone to lead in some capacity. You know, some people don't want to lead through tactics or, or technique. Some people can be a physical leader, an energy leader, an emotional leader, a social leader or something. You know, and I think trying to find players to have a voice in something where they feel part of the journey as much as the next person. I, I think in my kind of experience, I think most people want to be involved somewhere, somehow. And everyone's got a different skill set. Everyone's got something to offer and trying to find a way that they can offer something, contribute somewhere, um, I think is probably the art of coaching or one of the arts of coaching because to, to, to accept, uh, just tell me what it is, um, you know, I think you have to continue to try and work with the person, work with the player, why they, why they just want to be told, uh, what was it in their background of, of uh, education or in rugby, why they just want to be told what to do, um, what do they like about it, what do they not like about it. What, when did you play your best game? What was you know? The, the, I think when you start an avenue of, of, of questions and try and delve a little bit deeper, 
then often, although they say they want to be told, they also want some autonomy somewhere uh, in some facet of the game or some facet of construction of the game plan. So you've given some of these players this ownership and one or two players are absolutely fine. They are following through with it. Other players have been given the ownership and they start to make decisions, which you've given them the opportunity to make, which are clearly not going to help the team move forward or certainly from your perception. How do you deal with that sort of player, given that you've said, I want you to take ownership of this? I think, you know, co-creation is obviously a word that's used quite a lot. I think there's a, there's a parameter or framework of how you're trying to operate either culturally or, or in an environment, and then obviously how you're trying to operate in a rugby field tactically. Within those parameters, within those principles of play, you're looking for exploration or people to make decisions. So, for example, if one of your, if your principles of play is to play X amount of phases in a certain area of the field, but you're allowing a player that if they feel it's on to go, then you allow the player to feel on to go. We're not saying um, that they have to do something or not do something. Likewise, if you're in your 22, for example, we say we don't want you to play at all, and the player continually tries to chip over the top of the defensive line to do something, then he's going outside the boundary of the framework of play. And, and therefore, that's a different discussion with somebody about what it is they don't like about it or how can we, how can we embrace what it is that you're seeing or what it is that you're seeing and what effect you think it's having on the team's energy. You know, well, why are we spending too long inside our third? Is it due to what we do, why we do it, or is it due to, to, to player error, player decision-making? And we never really want to, I don't think coaches ever really want to knock the decision because otherwise you start taking away their, their freedom or their safety to make decisions. Uh, and if you go down that route of letting players have some autonomy in certain areas of the game, you're going to have to expect there's error, just like there's coach error, just like there's people make errors in all aspects of life. Um, the players are going to make mistakes and, and we, we have to accept that for the, for the greater good of where we need to get to because we can't make decisions for everybody, obviously. Uh, we don't play the game. We sit in the tower, you know, 60 foot up, uh, having a cup of tea, watching the game, you know. So we kind of, all we have as a, as a coach is, is feel, intuition and, and uh, visual sense. Whereas the player has almost like a tasting sense. He has a feel. He has something on the, on, on the field that we, we don't appreciate because we're not in the midst of it, you know? So I, I think both things have, have relevance and therefore that corresponds or, or translates into the training field as well and, and in the classroom about how you can both have an opinion about where you're trying to get to and see what kind of common thought you can get. And if, if you do it together, I think generally, um, you know, there's always going to be a maverick here or there, it's going to be something completely different. But <laughs> generally, generally, I think you, you, tend to, you tend to walk in a similar sort of path. And, and I think it's important that you do that for, for a couple of reasons. The first is that if you, if you don't have a different opinion to talk about and debate about it, we all fall into the same river of thinking straight away, which might be the completely wrong river to be in. You know? And then secondly, if we don't both have an opportunity to contribute, then someone feels... Um, someone feels that they've been left out, someone doesn't feel they have ownership, someone therefore doesn't want to contribute as much. So I think embracing the player's thoughts as much as possible, we, we know is important. Uh, and you're just going to find a way and have a, have a good relationship and a good trust uh, where the player respects the coach and the coach respects the players. Okay, so uh, let's just take it back a few steps then. So uh, this takes some time to build this trust, this um, this feeling where both both parties involved in it, and I say parties, it's uh, it's a team, are trying to understand each other and where they're going to go and having good discussions about the way you want to play. So um, inevitably, over a long career, you're going to be starting a new club uh, every once in a while. So given that experience... What, what helps, what would suggest to a coach that 
you can do to get the players to buy into you quickly. And it might be, a, a in a sense, a negative question because it's the flip side. Uh, what should you do to make sure that you don't put the players off? So you're, on the positive side, we try and get them to buy into you, but there must be times when you've seen either coaches in your own career or you experience moments where you think, I wish I hadn't said that because uh, I've got a bit of um, digging to do to get them back. Yeah, look, I, like like I said, I think that I think the first the first thing to to, to get across um, as the most important thing for a player, if I was a player in the receiving end, is that the coach cares. I think I think I think that's the first thing, and generally care about the person, not necessarily the player as much. You know, the player is secondary to the person. So I think the first thing is to have an interest. You probably done it before, but I, I don't know. It's it's I think it's an American thing, really. It's one of these like thirty second quizzes. So I'll, I'll ask you, Dan, if I remember it rightly. Okay, give or take. If you were to if you were to name the the last five chancellors of the checkers, who are they? Last five chancellors of the ex. Uh, uh, You've got so thirty seconds. Okay. Thirty seconds. Okay. Next Th next question. Uh, name 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 the last five FA Cup winners. Oh, I wouldn't be able to do that. Name, I'd probably be all right on name, the chancellors. Okay. Name me ten Nobel Peace Prize winners. Name me five of the wealthiest people in the world. And, and then the reason I'm saying this, if, if I asked you a different question, right? So I've asked that question. These yeah. are, you know, all those five wealthiest, five yeah, yeah, yeah. winners, five, they're successful people. Okay, they've achieved a lot of things. Yeah. But for normal people, it, it's, it's hard to relate. It's hard to really remember them. Yeah. Despite all that success, they, they don't yeah. stick. People's successes of yesterday doesn't stick in your mind so much. But if I asked you, you know, which three school teachers had the biggest influence in your life? Um, which five friends did you have that were that were around when you really needed them? Mm. Um, which which person helped you the most in your in, in your career, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. The probably names probably come to mind a lot easier and a lot faster yeah, 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 too, than all yeah. these success. And the reason is these people actually cared about you. They, they cared about your development, mm. they cared about your yeah. well-being, they care about your mental state, etc. Uh, etc. Et so I think if we take that as a kind of uh, an, an ideology into, into coaching. Then, then caring is probably the most fundamental thing that I think you want to try and get right. Allied to that, um, I think you have to be respected. So you have to earn people's respect and also you have to be respectful, you know, because again, everyone is different. So you must afford everyone the same kind of privileges or opportunities. And by opportunity, I don't necessarily mean playing opportunity because life's not like that. Otherwise, mm. everyone plays the British Lions, right? It's not like that. There is a selection at some stage, but as long as everyone is treated the same, afford the same opportunity to, to development, et cetera, then that's okay. You treat them differently in terms of how you communicate with them, um, you respect their individuality, et cetera, et cetera. So treat everyone the same, but different. And I think that's a, that's a useful kind of phrase that we kind of had at Saracens as well about making sure you respect the individual. We had Graham Obrey, the, the, the flying Scotsman, come in one year to talk to the team. And it was an unbelievably passionate, um, you know, emotional kind of speech. And this guy is an individual, he's a maverick, you know, like completely different. Um, and I think that if he wasn't allowed to do some of the things that he did, the leap forward in cycling would never have happened to the pace that it did. You know, he was, a, he was completely out there. And I think understanding that people are different and allowing that to flourish is, is important. So um, caring, uh, being respectful and respected and um, making, sure that you, making sure that you have time for the player. You know, and um, again, as I said, I think the more that you can talk about the person rather than the player, um, then then you're probably on a, you're probably heading in the right direction. I think that's what people will connect with the most mm. and the earliest um, to the person they're going to be coached by. Conversely, um, obviously, if if the player feels you have no interest in them, 
uh, just like you would, you know, in, in, a, in a friend situation, if you were meeting someone in the bar and you're, and you're having a chat with them and someone else joins a group and mm. you kind of feel there's a lack of, lack of um, emotional and social chemistries because they're not showing interest in you or, or they're not looking in the eye when you talk to them um, or, or whatever. You know, you get the idea that kind of something, something's happening there between two people that isn't working. And the reason is there's a lack of interest in the other person. I think that, again, comes into coaching. If you have a genuine interest, and it has to be genuine because otherwise people see through it. People mm. see through it. You can't, you can't kid people all the time, you know? So you, you have to be who you are and be genuine um, and, and genuinely care with it. Okay, so I, I mean, I'm still trying to think who the last five chances were, as you were saying. <laughs> but I, I don't know, I, mate. So. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, so that, I mean, that obviously really resonates and um, with me in terms of uh, the people who care. And I think a difficult thing for coaches is to, in a very busy day, and I can remember talking um, when I, uh, very, very early on, uh, when we, I was doing Rugby Coach Weekly to some coaches and they said, I just do not have enough time. And I said, uh, we must have loads of time. Says, I just do not have enough time to speak to the players uh, properly. And that meant finding out a little bit more about them and not asking um, questions which weren't just, I'm just ticking boxes. They were just wanted to know them. And uh, that's why they said, oh, we need more, I need more coaches around me to help me do this because there's just not enough time in the day. I mean, that, one of the things that, um, I don't know what you're like, I know that some coaches will be in at five o'clock in the morning and won't leave until 10 o'clock at night. Is it possible uh, at the level you're at to actually not be coaching 16 hours a day or is it is it just you just cannot get away with it hey look look i mean i i, I was i was in that boat myself you know it's slightly different from me over here um partly because the amount of games you play is less um you know but but, but kind of you do get into a routine of getting early you know leaving leaving last because th there's always something to do you know, particularly in, in my last role, there was always something to do. And a lot of things, I, I know I've heard other younger head coaches, you know, speak about this. There's lots of things that you don't necessarily appreciate that you have to do in that role. You know that, you know, they exist, you know, you have to do them, but you don't understand how much physical and mental energy it actually takes out of you. And, and just, and just time, just pure time. And, you know, I was probably one of the few that was also a tracksuit coach as well. I was actually coaching, um, you know, effectively 50% of the game. So there was a, there was a lot, there was a lot going on. And, you know, certainly I set out with really good intentions about um, speaking to players all the time. I used to mm -hmm. ring them on the way home, but that'd be like half six, seven o'clock at night when I'm driving home. And I'm also reaching a level of fatigue and, and I've got a family and friends outside the game, obviously, that I need to speak to and, and touch base with. And I didn't live near the training grounds. And so I was always in the morning, leaving at half four in the morning to get to work for, for six, to go to the gym or whatever. And then leaving after the rush hour Heath, around Heathrow to get back <laughs> to, to North London. So... Kind of was a geographical necessity for me as well. Um, I, th I think understanding and staying true to, to what you want to try and be and, and reminding yourself of that. And, and some kind of things I've kind of picked up along the way about um, having a kind of personal check-in and reflection uh, and, and reminding yourself about your, your key values or key behaviors that you want to try and do. And then, then seeing what works, what doesn't work, and then have what you call a professional clear out, essentially. You know, people do that in all aspects of life, but like, this is still working. I'm going to continue with that. I need to improve that. Are these things, they're taking up too much of my time and I can't do them. Can I, can I re-delegate? Can I push them somewhere else? Or don't, are they just not needed? They're just wasting too much time, full stop, and we can get rid of them. And, and I think that comes not just from a, 
um, I suppose logistical organizational kind of aspect of, of some some parts of coaching depending on your on your description but also actually your your on-field coaching you know there's some activities that you might have got used to doing you like it and they kind of something I was doing a you know a few years ago but it's kind of now like a square peg in a round hole so maybe now you also need to professional clear out some of the activities that you do and and looking at the game the game's the greatest teacher right so the game's telling you what's working what's not working um, Neil Craig, who works with, um, with with Eddie as a high performance manager with the RFU, always said success leaves clues, and and, it, and he's not wrong. But but the extension of that is fairly also leaves clues as well. You know, <laughs> both both good and the bad will point something towards you. Every week is, is feedback. Every week is feedback on where your game's at, what's working, what's not working. Uh, reflection or feedback on on your training week. Have you overcooked them? Have you undercooked them? Have you emotionally got to the right level? Um, are you technically deficient? Um, are you are you physically can you not compete? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So I think all the time you're trying to take in as much as you possibly can, and and you want to put that into your kind of framework. And you need some stages just to stop, to take a breath, have a look around you. You know, enjoy what's going well for you. You know, enjoy the moment. It's a it's a privilege to coach. Obviously, it's a privilege to work with people. It's a privilege to be involved in professional sport. Full stop. And also, you need to to because you want to improve players. And you ask them to improve. I think there's also a need for for you or for me, in my opinion, that I need to improve. You know, there's always there's always a thirst for me to get better. Um, if I want the players to get better, why can I not have the same expectation on myself, or why can they not have the same expectation of me to improve and be honest and receive feedback? And I think that's 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 a critical part of coaching as well. So I'm thinking now that you're obviously completely immersed in what you're doing and you're trying to cut things out how do you um as a coach shut the briefcase and switch off is it is it possible i mean I, i'm sure it's difficult but is it is it possible look co coaching coaching isn't easy you know like it's not it's not an easy profession for sure <laughs> it's it's a great profession it's a great profession no it's very 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 rewarding you know i think as i said at the very start you get a connection with another human being and, and whatever aspect of life it is, that's, that's always a rewarding experience. And fundamentally, it appeals to your, to your core because it appeals to the fact that you're being appreciated. Yeah. You know, that, that, someone, that someone else is feeling something with you at the same time and you've got a, you've got a memory that you share. You've got something that will, that will live with you. And I think that's, that's why it's such a great profession to be in. That's why it's such a you know, rewarding thing to be in. And obviously at the professional level, um, it's your job. It, it pays. It puts a roof over your head. So it, it's a it's a real privilege and an honour to be able to do that. The downside of coaching is, of course, especially now with social media and everything else, that there's there's anyone that can criticise you about anything without knowing much about you as a person, mm -hmm. without knowing much about what you're doing actually at the club, or knowing really full facts and figures or truths about what's actually going on. You know, if you're one person, your narrative is about one person. Mm -hmm. You know, you can only talk about yourself, and you either choose to or not to. And I think from that point of view, the, the ability to switch off is a skill and it's, and it's hard and it is hard to switch off. I, I, I'm learning and I'm getting better at that um, because it, it wasn't healthy where I was at before. Um, but I think you know, one of the reasons I want to try and coach abroad was to get away from, from, from England, um, try something new, try, try and broaden my coaching toolbox, if you like, um, develop as a human being. Um, you know, invest more time in relationships with people, not just at the rugby club, but with my family, with friends, and 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 experience something for me and for my family that we can have something together that in ten years, fifteen years time, we can look back and say what an amazing experience we had mm -hmm. in Treviso, and and how that helped me springboard to, the, to to whatever else might happen next in my coaching journey. Yeah, I I mean, I think uh, I mean I speak to lots of coaches uh, who are in 
similar, have been in similar situations to you uh, as you are now. And the, the difficulty is that you always know that there's something more that you can do. And at what stage do you say, stop, I can't do anything more today. I actually have to turn my computer off, put my phone down and actually enjoy the sunset. And that's the thing. And that, that's, that's not easy. So I suppose it's not a similar sort of question because you're talking a lot about your own development and how you want to develop yourself. Um, in your experience, and it's not necessarily uh, talking about yourself, but you might draw on some of your own um, thoughts on, on where you've been before, is what's holding coaches back from being better versions of themselves? You're looking and say you could be so much better as a coach if you started to do more of this. Well, I suppose, I suppose the first thing is, do you mean like, do, do you mean better version of themselves as a human being or as, as a coach? Like what's... Well, I, th I, spe I expect the, the clever answer is probably you've got to be both to be a better coach. Um, yeah. And you, you might say, uh, well, I was, I was better. As a, I mean, I can think of examples myself where I was better as a coach once I stopped worrying about something or I started to embrace uh, something else. So I just wonder from your experience, when you look at, say, younger coaches coming in, given that you've been in coaching for a long time, you think actually what you really need to be doing is spending less time doing this, a bit more time doing that. And perhaps it is just being a better person. Yeah, look, look I, I, think, I think to be the best version of yourself, you've got to be true to yourself. So I think, I think, I think it starts from inside and, and proverbially looking in the mirror, like what, what is it that I want to be as a human being first and foremost? Like what do, what do I want people to think about me as a person? Um, you know, and I think that if you, if you stay true to that, then you've got the best chance of being what it is you want to be. Along the way, there's always going to be setbacks and bumps in the road, okay? There's going to be things that don't go your way. You're going to have bad days. You're going to, you're going to uh, move jobs. You're going to do something different because that's, that's, the, way, that's the way it goes sometimes. Um, and I think that having these stop checks and, and, and reflections and reminding yourself or having outside people to give you feedback, you know, particularly in the professional game, um, you know, the bubble is so, so small and it, it gets tighter and tighter and tighter if results aren't going your way. And, and the margins sometimes you can be 1% or 2% off. Mm but you could be lose by 15, 20 points. You know, it, it can be anything. It can be an overthrown a line out seven points. You know, it can be uh, a missed kick at goal and, and, you, and you lose the game that you should have won. It, it can be so small, the margins at times, and you feel this noose coming around your neck tighter and tighter. Um, at the very top level, obviously in the premiership with relegation, there's a, there's a fear of that for some people, which dictates sometimes how you might end up coaching. And if you're not aligned or you don't have clear... Um, direction or, or clarity with with the board or whoever it is that might oversee a program, then obviously you can you can feel more pressure. You can feel different things, and that's going to manifest itself in some ways or some characteristics of you when you coach or when you interact with people. That's human nature. I think that if you can stay true to who you are, and I think that if you can continue to reflect and and, and remind yourselves about the things that you want to be, um, because we all want to be something. Like I, I work with players now. Um, it's a, it's a doff of the cap to a guy called Dan Abrahams, who used to work with the FA, did a small bit yeah. with, with England as well. Uh, very clever guy, psychologist, actually used to be a pro golfer. And he works on game faces, right? He works on these things called game face, where he tries to create a persona that people want to be on the field, develops a match script. And I kind of use that with some players, um, as well as you know individual development plans and that kind of stuff, to try and bring things to life. Well, obviously, I also have a game face. I have something that I want to be when I when I coach. I have something when I want to be when I walk through the door and, and see my wife and my kids. You know, we all, we all have that. And reminding yourself about what that is and what makes you happy. Because if you're not happy, 
then it's very hard to be the best version of yourself, mm. you know, and, and you need some good people around you to remind you of that. Um, I had and do have uh, professional um, assistants. So I've got a mindset coach called Ella McChrystal who, who helps me. It's fantastic. I speak to lots of other, um, you know, coaches around the world um, and try and speak to them to, to, to want to pick the brains, but also to talk through commonality of, of issues, uh, commonality of successes, um, you know, and, and kind of share that share the journey that you want because it's, it can be a roller coaster at times. Mm. So yeah, for, for sure, I think I think understanding what it is you want to be, finding what makes you you happy, and and then try and stay true to that as much as possible. And and remember that the process leads to the performance, not the outcome. You know, and and if we along the way we only ever coach really for I don't know, you might have two one and one and a quarter hour sessions a week, and and uh, another thirty minutes or so, or forty five minutes. That's pretty much it as a team. You know, you you three hours give or take most professional teams. So your actual on-field coaching time isn't vast, and you've got to get in there, kicking game, uh, you know, defense, breakdown, technical uh, attack, and so on, all, all those kind of things. So your actual time on-field is going to be less. It's how you use the time off the field with the player, um, how off the field in, in unit groups and off the field on yourself and your, your staff, I think, is is where time, I think, is now getting more diverted into it and trying to create healthy environments for people to prosper. Okay, so I'm... Um really interested in a lot of things you've just well i'm interested in all, everything but i mean dan abraham's excellent and uh he's got a very good um sports psych podcast out there uh, uh one of the ones i was very interested in was you say you've got to realize what game you're your what game success you're having at the time in the sense of you split yourself into an a performance b performance c performance or d performance and you very rarely bring your a performance to a game uh, you hope to bring your B performance most of the time, but sometimes you're having a game where you're only in your C performance. And once you realize that, then you can make changes to the game. Uh, uh, he gives the example of Richard McCaw. Richard McCaw realizes he's not on form for that day or he's just lost a little bit of his uh, sparkle. So he does something very, very simple rather than try to re regain the game. So, uh, yeah, well worth... Uh, people dropping into the Dan Abraham stuff as well along those lines. So I'm thinking now that um, you, you've, you've, had a, you've had a weekend, either you've won or you're lost. Um, and Monday or Tuesday, that one and a half hours comes along on the training field. Are you correcting the mistakes you made on the weekend uh, or are you just moving on to the next stage? What, what, what happens in the sort of, world that you are existing in coaching wise is it a progression or is it mend mending okay i think i mean it's a great question i think again like everything that there's a flux and there's a there's a there's a movement you know everything's quite organic at times you want to correct things because it's important for the week after mostly as much as possible it's linked to what's going to happen the next week Generally, again, we come back to the power of three, you know, what three things can we fix um, or do we need to really implement to get right? For example, let's say the breakdown, there's two or three contest areas left in the game, the aerial contest, the breakdown contest, and probably the overall fizzle contest, just winning a collision either side of the mm -hmm. ball, right? So we kind of we kind of look at that now and go, okay, say say we're playing a team that are, that are unbelievable over the ball, you know, unbelievable over the ball, but the week after we're not, we want to keep numbers on feet, numbers on feet, numbers on feet. So you can either get caught up with the thought that, well, look, we need to really fix this as a problem for the week after, but next week it might not be the opportunity or they might not be the team that want to dive into the rocks as much as the team we just played, 
But actually, our bigger problem is how we can play through them more because they're actually keeping numbers on feed. So you might, you know, for some things, you might kind of leave it and keep to individual feedback with the player. You might do a unit group review. Uh, you might do some walkthrough scenarios. You might get some of these you know, the brains trust, some of these leadership groups that we spoke about earlier on, trying to drive things through themselves about how they can pick things up. Um, you might do it without an actual physical review and you're doing some technical stuff outside the gym and you're doing some breakdown work and why this is important, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's other ways you can do it without the traditional classroom. Look, we did here. This wasn't good enough. This wasn't good enough. I, I think generally as a principle of play, um, you kind of you kind of want to uh, encourage in public and, and give more critical feedback in an individual basis where, again, the player feels safe. Um, you can have a, a relationship and a conversation around something and try and see what they're feeling at the time, what was it that they were seeing, what what they could have done or what might they've done better or were they happy with their decision, et cetera. So I think generally, generally kind of feedback nowadays tends to be based either on your values, um, either values of the game or values as a club. You know, will we disciplined? Will we working hard? Will we, you know, few Saracens as an example um, or do you want to do something that's based on the game plan specific game plan action points that the, the the anchor points or the access points that you thought would win the game that weekend did we do those um, sometimes when you win you might go straight over it um, sometimes when you lose you might go straight over it and vice versa you know I, I wouldn't say there's a hard and fast rule I, I've worked in groups where we go value-based this is who we are this is who we're going to be um, did we do those things? Win or lose. Win or lose. Those are three things that we're looking for. Do we get those right? Other times, at the moment, we kind of we kind of move around and we use different parts of the of the training. We try and give feedback, um, and we try and use the players a lot. And we have um, with these these circles and stuff that we have going on where we try and get some some feedback from the players as much as possible. So, I think one of the arts of coaching is feel. Uh, one of the arts of coaching is understand where the group can be at uh, and how that feedback can be received or how can we deliver in the most optimal way. Yeah, so sometimes uh, the feel is uh, the players need to go back and address the issues from the weekend because otherwise they won't let them go. And other times let's move over because we can get it, we can go move faster if we don't focus back on what's going on. So you mentioned a couple of things there around the breakdown and uh, given that you do like to wear the tracksuit, it would be remiss of me not to ask about some of the, the detail around the breakdown. Um, now, I was going to ask you about uh, the jackling thing, but I'm going to come back to that in a moment. You said uh, sometimes you've got to play through defences. So if a defence decides not to compete at the breakdown and they're on their feet all the time, it strikes me that you could end up uh, playing about 30 phases, uh, but only moving 10 metres backwards and forwards. So apart from kicking the ball, what else are you suggesting to teams for, or for you might suggest to a team to break down that sort of defence when they've got as many players on their feet as they can? I think, I think what, what's, if we go just back a step first, is what, what's happened now is most people, particularly in the premiership, are carbon copies of each other. Okay, you, You've got some better chess pieces, but some better players in certain positions that make things tick a little bit better for some teams. But fundamentally, everyone plays a kind of, um, we, we often talk about one three three one or one three two one one, which is basically adds up to eight. It's the dispersion of forwards across the field, okay, from left to right. So people put one forward in, in the 50 meter, three off nine, two or three off 10 and, and on the second pod, and then either one and one wider or, or another set of two coming off. So roughly speaking, everyone attacks like that trying to get two-sided attack manipulate, manipulated by holding defence on either side. 
defense now everyone's kind of copied what Southampton were doing back when when I was there really or ball watching uh, equal kind of space and more or less and, and get off the line as hard as they can like everyone's kind of doing pretty much the same thing you know exit the same five man line out three man close to the line six plus one close to the opposition line so everyone's doing something similar so when teams are trying to keep numbers on feet what they're trying to what they're trying to create is more line speed so that that's that's the purpose of it if you've got more numbers on feet you can stand a little bit closer together which is what you want for more line speed because the wider you are we now know that people are sending two runners in against one defender is that it draws you in and you get ineffective tackles because they start playing out the back. So what people are trying to do is get maybe four to five metres of spacing per defender. And if you have too few, then you get played out the back too easily and they get momentum on the edge. So that's why teams are trying to keep numbers on feet as much as possible. So I'm just going to just say, just say to uh, the people listening in, when you say out the back, that means that uh, the player passes behind the players who are in front of them. I mean, it's like the rugby league. We see it in rugby league. We see a lot now in rugby union. Yeah, sorry. Carry on. Yeah, yeah, no, no, you're spot on. So they'll either either play straight out of the back, so they'll use the two runners as dummy runners effectively, Mm. or they'll play into that pod, and then the pod will play a ball out of the back from the forward. Yeah. So that that's that tends to be the ways of people trying to hold defence down, sit you down, and then find space on the edges. Mm. So what teams try and do against that, there's is the first thing. Obviously, there's a lot of emphasis on the collision. Okay, and then after the collision is trying to see how far past the breakdown you can go legally um, to try and check the fold, basically to check the fold. You want to try and prevent what they're trying to achieve, which is numbers on feet and get around the corner. Second thing that you look to do is change direction, to change direction. So generally speaking, generally speaking, in a 15 meter short side, people would either leave three defenders up to four defenders if they see numbers being left back. But generally Teams leaving between two and three as a, as a base principle, base principle of defense. So everyone can fold so you know where you are. You know how many numbers you've got on the open, which is generally nine. Okay, so generally that's what you that's what you look at trying to create. So what teams will then do is change direction against you to try and prevent your line speed to come back at you. Obviously, the downside when you change direction is you come back against this wall of defenders again. So again, it comes down to uh, winning collision, getting yourself deep past the ball as much as possible. Other ways through is is to, to pick and go, is to pick and go. So you'll see teams that really have a big emphasis on numbers on feet. You'll see teams that will try and target uh, in the middle of the field and then maybe start pick and go patterns through the middle. Or you'll see teams that go target, go one more the same way and play what people might call a 21 pattern. So two, two phases, one direction, one phase change direction, but they actually change direction and play back in towards the rock. So they'll try and attack inside, inside 10, um, inside inside the rock as much as possible to try and prevent the opportunity for numbers on feet. And what they're trying to do is get you to get tighter again so that you can then find the space again, either through through you or obviously behind you as well. So the, the idea really is uh, in order to stress the defence, uh, you are um, either being better in the collision um, or you are changing your pattern to try and don't play so quite wide, so wide out. You're saying play inside the 10 because that's where the players aren't necessarily on their feet just from the last one. I'm not quite sure how that works. So well, it, yeah, I understand yeah, the pick and go principle. I'm trying yeah. to work out how the uh, you're attacking between the 9 and the 10 in, in attack. How does that uh, stress them? 
Well, the, 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 the main thing really is that obviously when a ball moves away from you, so if, if a ball is moved from nine to 10, it's moving away from you. The defense on the inside, <clears throat> naturally most people talk about staying high on the inside, stay high on the inside. So you want to go straight and then across. But naturally in a flow of a game, is like you get a, a breakdown and the ball goes, your natural arc of running is overs, so going overs on the drift almost towards, mm. towards the 10. So they actually open up the channel Ah, generally right. speaking, again, generally speaking, again, you have um, you know your tight five in the middle of the field, so you're, you're you're operating maybe with a winger or back row or something. So you're getting a physical advantage or physical uh, mismatch uh, against somebody in and around the ruck, and you're trying to exploit that by dovetailing that with your breakdown uh, policy of trying to get past the ball a little bit to try and check their foals, so you get half a shoulder, get some momentum, and then if you can, obviously, get into some kind of offloading game if that's your if that's your philosophy of play. The, the, the reason I say like to play through them is that if they have numbers on feet and you just go pattern rugby, so let's say we, we are, most teams are one three three one for, for ease of language, mm-hmm. that you play the three off nine, you then play three off 10, they keep numbers on feet. That by the time you go to the third phase, you, you have no numerical advantage. So they, their flow, your flow of your attack just plays into their defensive system. Mm-hmm. So one of, the, one of the things you obviously try and do as a, as a, as a coach or as a team, I guess, is you're trying to strengthen your hand. So you're trying to trying to see what it is that you do well and play 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 true to that and stay true to that. But also you're trying to mitigate their strength or or, or uh, highlight their weaknesses. And and I think using that kind of uh, dual principle thinking, um, you know, you don't want to change how you attack from week to week all the time, but you want to have flexibility in your attack and shape mm. uh, or structure or framework of how you play, where you can try and use some of the other alternatives to try and find some space in the field because somewhere the space. The space somewhere, it's either, you know, I think the Kiwis used to talk about nine dimensions of space, which probably only the Kiwis can think about. So I'm from Newcastle, <laughs> so we think about a little bit less, right? So we either go, the space the space through you, outside you or behind you. Yeah. You know, the, 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 there's more. But but fundamentally speaking, you're going to try and find space between defenders because they're too wide. You're trying to find space outside them because they're too tight and they don't have numbers. Or you're going to find space behind them because they've um, you know really, really loaded the front line and the backfield's deep. Or there's only one in the backfield and the space in the backfield. So I think keeping an idea of those kind of opportunities, not every time, obviously, when you're playing against a team that keep numbers on feet, are you going to find momentum all the time through them? Um, but if you don't, then you have to find another way. You might kick and you look for the counter-attack opportunity or, or, or so on. So uh, moving back to the teams which do compete, um, and um, watching, say, the internationals over the weekend, there was a number of occasions where teams just gave up the ball because someone came in and stole it. Uh, are you just, is that just good play on the defensive point of view, or has the attack got it wrong? Has the, uh, can, what can the attack do to mitigate a team which has got a couple of very good ball stealers, jacklers? Yeah, look, I think, you know, there's, there's a bit of both, you know, sometimes it obviously is the, is the attack. Generally, generally, if you're getting turned over, it, it lends itself to, to, to a couple of things. One, the collision has been lost. You know, you've lost the collision as a ball carrier uh, and you've, you've found yourself in a compromised position to present the ball. At the moment, it's not necessarily favouring jacklers, but if you can get onto the ball early, it's no longer surviving clear out and that kind of thing like it was a few years ago. If you're in a good position on the ball to, to steal the ball, the referee is going to award a turnover. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a big emphasis on the ball carrier to be able to present the ball. So the first thing you're looking at is probably the ball carrier. How did he enter the contact zone? Um, did he did he find an opportunity for a shoulder? Did he go um, you know straight in the middle of two defenders? Did he fight for his legs, etc.? 
The next thing is obviously he's also got some help. He's got these guys called cleaners coming in, okay? And you're therefore looking at what they can do. So if someone's tackling high and, and you see some teams like Ireland, obviously uh, choke tackle or mm. hold up tackle as much as possible, then you're probably trying to remove those tacklers that are trying to hold up early to allow your guy that's carrying the ball to fight to get to floor or fight to get his knees down. Therefore, mm. tackles made, therefore no, it's no longer held up. Next thing, obviously, is you can target certain players. So if you're playing against a team that have got some, some real, you know, let's say, exceptional stealers, you know, a Tom Curry, for example, yeah. but maybe you actually want to run at Tom Curry. You want to run at Tom Curry. You see Tom Curry in the line or in starter plays. You want to run at Tom Curry, not to allow him the opportunity to come from the inside and get over the ball. Mm. You know, so you might tactically have something where you're trying to target the one or two real big stealers that they have in their team and get into them in terms of a collision, make them tackle, rather than allow them to be on their feet to try and contest on the ball. Um, so the, the, the primary thing would be around the ball carrier. What, what can the ball carrier do? Second thing would be around the urgency and, and technique of the, of the arriving cleaners um, or potential ball carriers um, and what, what they do when they get to the breakdown and how the ball is then presented. Or finally, you might have a tactical choice where you go from structure, for example, you want to attack their main stealers uh, and make them tackle rather than give them opportunity to be on their feet to get over the ball. So you arrive at Benetton and you see you've got this in mind that you want to do. What, what in the early days with them, are you, how much time are you spending on that aspect of the game and what are you doing in particular to help them out? Because you've obviously got a very clear idea of how to deal with this and they may not be as sharp as you want. So what are you going to be doing with them to get them up to speed? And how long are you spending? So I think, yeah, look, we, we spend probably... Um, I give, give or take, we, we do three kind of carousels of about 15 minutes, three times a week, which would be five minutes around tackle contest. So, you know, mm -hmm. stealing the ball, five minutes attack and breakdown, five minutes of, of tackle technique. So kind of after the gym, we kind of do some technical work to try and develop the players, which is, which is lower intensity, but much more technical. So that's one thing about trying to, trying to improve body heights and improve focus. You can still make some diversions, some speed change and so on, but, but fundamentally you, you're trying to see how, quickly, particularly the tall people, how they can get from high to low fast. Um, for, for wider, short people, how quick they can move and have an angle change from being a support player into a, into a contact zone, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then, then you got to think that's, that's one part of it. So there's a technical aspect. <clears throat> but also, you know, as kids, we learn a lot through games, right? So you want to try and see what games and constraints can you put around games where you can focus on the skill. So we mentioned there before, for example, a ball carrier. So you might have a constraint around the game about leg drive. So you say, if they don't pump the legs when they go into, into the game, it's an instant turnover. You might say you're looking for the urgency of the first man. If the first man can't beat the inside gate, might bib up two or three players and mm -hmm. um, that I want to try and contest. They have to hit the floor first, the contester, before the first man. And if he gets in, it's a turnover. So you try and put more emphasis on the, on the first man urgency coming in. Mm -hmm. You might then go, well, unfortunately, with rugby, it's not just technical things. Uh, it's not just tactical. There's this other thing called physical and emotional, and, and they're, never, they're never separated, okay? So you can try and work on some technical thing, but we know in the game, you need, you need emotional to be at, at a level, and you need to be physical. You know, the game is, is, is a contest game and a, and a contact game. So you need, you, need to, you need to also train that. So at times, you're going to have to get a little bit dirty with it, and players are going to have to be a bit uncomfortable and see how quickly they can get into contact zones. We, we, we actually at Benetton have some fantastic stealers of the ball, uh, and we've put a lot of energy into that because we're not the biggest team by far, 
Um, so we, we focus a lot on leg tackling because it's, it's, it's a way for, for smaller uh, athletes uh, to have an advantage because they can take legs away, right? Um, acronym, legs equals gain line success, okay? So we want to try and take legs away and then we give ourselves the opportunity with the team that we have to contest the ball a little bit more. So our, our philosophy would be different to, for example, um, some, some Irish teams that look to try and choke you a little bit, got bigger guys, big locks, big back row. We, we haven't got that. So we've got to go around the game a slightly different way and, and, and focus on that for our tackle contest work. But, but I think you've got to think again, like what is the game teaching us on the Saturday? What, what lessons are we learning? What can I bring down from that game? How can I make that into a game and, and mirror that in training to expose the players to certain aspects of what we're trying to achieve? Brilliant. Well, Paul, are we? I mean, there's a number of other questions going to ask, but we've uh, covered a, a hell of a lot, right from the philosophy of coaching, how you approach it, right down to the technical detail. That's that's brilliant, and uh, um, I've well, I've picked up lots and lots, and um, there's there's a lot of detail around this. It's it's been brilliant. Um, so thank you very much for that. I mean, if you had to sort of capture one thing about, um, if we go back to why do you love coaching, um, can you just sort of capture that in? a few words because I think you've, you've, you've come across as uh, excited, energetic, loving the coaching. You know, if you come away and say, what's the one thing which makes makes it all worthwhile, what would it be? Uh, simple one for me, that human connection uh, mm -hmm. and making a difference, either yeah. either for the person, for the organization or, or to yourself as well. You know, there, there's, uh, you know, it's not, it's not completely altruistic this, you know, you get rewards and appreciation <laughs> exactly. from, from, from other people achieving, right? You know, it's nice to see people that you've coached go on and achieve their ambitions or, or, or succeeding. And look, for everyone, it's something different, Dan, right? Like uh, someone's, someone's version of success is different to someone else's version of success. Mm. You know, so someone like, say, Marcus Smith wants to be the best rugby player in the world. You know, he's, he's probably unashamed in saying that. Mm. Other players just want to play for the first team. 20 times you know there's, there's something different but if you can help achieve help people achieve some of these goals and objectives and they feel that development in it then then i think then you're heading on to something and if you can do that by having a genuine connection with people and um obviously over the last year i've had different different things going on but the amount of people i've coached um you know either at the last club or clubs previous or with england that i got in touch with me was really was really knew that i've, I've made a difference to some people you know and, and for that that's all down to human connection no, that's brilliant. I, I love that. And I love that thought and uh, definitely comes across in all the things you've been saying. So, Paul, thank you very much for your time. That's been great. Thank you. I've already got to put some suntan cream on, mate. It's 16 degrees. I've got a chance. I've got a chance to get off white. <laughs> well, I'm not, uh, not going to pretend I'm not jealous of uh, you saying that. Um, so, uh, thanks again to Paul for uh, his time. This is a Rugby Coach Weekly podcast. If you want to find out more about this podcast, uh, please go along to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the podcast button where you can find more about Paul and uh, what we talked about today and all the other podcasts. So thank you all for listening and we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks for listening to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.